Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I don't think I've jumped in all the way yet, but I'm learning. And part of being in the tribes and, and getting our first two deals done and funded is learning about how the process works, what questions you need to ask, and what you have to be on the lookout for. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. This episode of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast will be a little bit different than normal. This is a back-to-basics episode. I've gotten some feedback that some of the terms we use need a little definition and and need a little help for people to understand. And a good friend of mine, Dan Bartholomew, he agreed to come on because he has had some of these same questions and he's agreed to ask all of the questions that maybe someone just starting out might need to know. So he's been taking notes on the last few podcasts and coming up with his list of questions. And I want to thank Dan because I appreciate his courage to come out and share all the questions he had and and all the things he doesn't know. You know, usually on this podcast and other podcasts, it's people sharing all the stuff that they do know. It takes a lot for someone to come on and acknowledge that there are things they need to learn. And Dan was gracious enough to do that. And he had a list of questions and we just went through them and and answered them all. This podcast goes a little bit longer than normal. It's about an hour, but we thought we'd put it all in one episode so that you could learn from Dan while he was learning as well. So I really want to thank Dan for being a great guest And also, this is the first, as you'll hear, the first in-person episode I did. So if it got a little goofy at the end, I blame the the glass of bourbon that Dan and I were having while we were speaking. So with that, on to the episode. I'm pleased today to have Dan Bartholomew with me, actually with me in person for my first (laughs) in-person interview. So it's pretty exciting. He's a financial advisor. We used to work together. He is now getting into passive investing. In fact, he's in his first two investments through a tribe. We're in those together. 
So that's pretty exciting. And he's here today because he's been listening to the podcast and he's been attending some of the left field investing meetings and he has some beginner type questions. And I've been getting some feedback also that some of the terms we use and we assume everybody knows what we're talking about and some of them they don't. And Dan has been kind enough to take some notes from the last few podcasts. And um, so today's episode is going to be Dan asking me a bunch of questions. But first, I'm going to ask him the question. So Dan, you're getting into passive a little bit. You're a financial advisor. Can you talk about your journey, your financial journey, how you got into financial advising and, and what led you to think, now I want to get into a little bit of the real estate stuff as well? Yeah. So my story is going to be a lot less exciting than most of your, your previous guests that I've, I've listened to. I got into financial advising about 12 years ago, almost on accident. Just my family and I moved back up from Florida. I was looking for something to do, got into it, really liked it, enjoyed it, and have been doing it ever since. But then, you know, two years ago or so, when you started talking about all this real estate stuff, it was over my head. My only experience with real estate is you buy a house, you live in it, you sell a house, you buy a different house. So it's been interesting to to hear you talk about it. And then the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to, to get my feet wet. And I don't think I've jumped in all the way yet, but I'm learning. And and part of being in the tribes and, and getting our first two deals done and funded is learning about how the process works, what questions you need to ask, and what you have to be on the lookout for. Yeah. And you know, with tribe best, one of the benefits is you could be in a tribe to learn like our tribe is, or you can be in a, a tribe that might be putting in a bunch of capital where you're expecting to make a, a ton of money. You can do yeah. either. You know, our tribe, because we're only in two deals, you know, maybe we'll do one or two deals a year. It's not going to allow any of us to retire from those investments, but you'll learn and then you can do some more investing on the side or, or on your own. Yeah. So that, that's what I think that the benefit of the tribes are, but you have to understand which kind of tribe you're in and which kind of tribe you want to be. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the tribe that we're in, I feel like I'm the the newbie in that. And I have probably the the least amount of experience just, you know, being on those meetings and hearing everybody talk. But it's good because I mean everybody starts somewhere, right? And and I feel like I'm learning and I'm getting used to the lingo and, and what the different stuff means. Yeah, and I really appreciate you coming here and kind of just taking notes for a couple of weeks and getting your questions because I know for sure there are other people that have these same questions. And there's terms that we use that, that people don't understand. And we're going to get get a chance to explain those today. So let's just get right into it. What's your first question for me? So two of the biggest terms that I, that I hear a lot of are cost segregation and bonus depreciation. Is it the same thing? What's the difference? Okay, that's a good one to start with. So cost segregation is when you get an engineer or an engineering company to do a study on your property. So they're going to identify personal property separate from real property. And they do that in order to accelerate depreciation. Residential depreciation on residential apartments and things like that is typically 27 and a half years straight line depreciation. Okay. And commercial is 39 years. So you take the value of the property divided by 27 and a half, that's the depreciation down the line. Cost segregation separates it into the com- different components. And we're not, we're not going to get too deep in the weeds, but then those components can be depreciated over five, seven, or 10 years. Okay. So that's cost segregation. That's just the act of kind of assigning different years and different depreciation sure. rates. Bonus depreciation is part of the two set 2017 Tax and Jobs Act, I think it's called. 
And that allows the depreciation deduction to increase to 100% all in year one. So things that you could only depreciate at 50% or, or whatever the percentages were, and also the five, seven, 10 years, everything can go into year one. So all it does really is gives you a big tax deduction in year one that allows you to, you know, using the time value of money, you take that deduction in year one, it's more value. Now you will have depreciation recapture on the back end. So it's not, you're not avoiding taxes, you're deferring taxes. Okay. So explain the depreciation recapture. So the recapture is, let's say you did a $100,000 investment and you did bonus depreciation and cost segregation and got a $20,000 paper loss in year one. Okay. So that loss, if and you had, let's say you had $20,000 of gain, yeah. right? That law cancels it out, you pay yeah. zero tax. Well, when that asset sells, whatever your gain is, you have to add on to that this 20000 of depreciation recapture. Uh, okay. Because you deferred the depreciation, but at the end you have to recapture it. Okay. So you pay tax, and it's actually a higher tax rate. You pay twenty five percent on depreciation recapture, where the normal capital gain tax is fifteen to twenty. So there's ways to. That's what we talk about. If then you take your proceeds and invest it again sure. in a new syndication, then you can offset that recapture. Okay. And so you don't end up paying tax as long as you keep going. It's kind of like the 1031 exchange where you keep transitioning into a new asset to keep the tax deferral going. This is the the lazy 1031 that you're talking about. Yes. Okay. What, what I just explained was the lazy 1031 that okay. Nate Bush, my accountant, kind of coined that term. Okay. So let's stay, since you touched on the taxes and, and how that works, you've also talked in, in several of the, the podcasts about being a real estate professional and being viewed as a real estate professional. First of all, what's the criteria? What's it matter? And then what are the benefits as opposed to being a part-time investor in real estate? Okay, so we're going to stay high level on this one as well. And you know, if you really want to know about bonus appreciation or the real estate professional, you got to talk to your your CPA. But real estate professional, basically, you have to have 50% of your work activities have to be in the real estate trade. And there's definitions for work activities and real estate trade, but you basically have to be in real estate. And you have to have 750 hours of work in real estate annually. Okay. So if you meet those requirements, then any passive loss, basically any loss of the depreciation we just talked mm-hmm. about, or any loss that you have in real estate, you can offset it against any active or passive income. So typically, if you have active income, which is a W-2, yep. basically, so the wages you get from your job, yep. you can't take real estate passive losses and deduct them against that active income. Typically, it has to be against other passive income. But if you're a real estate professional, then you can use any passive loss to offset your active income. Okay. So the the main way this is used really is by people who are already real estate professionals. But also it's commonly used by people who real estate isn't their main job, but maybe they have a spouse who isn't working a full-time job or is in real estate on the side, and you have a high-earning W-2 worker in the spouse, if they can get those 750 hours a year, maybe managing rentals or something like that, it allows all of the passive loss from your investing to offset some of the W-2 income from the high earner. Okay. So in some of the other networks I'm in, in communities, a lot of these really high W-2 earners they have their spouse become a real estate professional 
So then any real estate loss can offset their active. I got you. Okay. That makes sense. Previous podcast, Dave Zookan. Yeah. The examples that he used in the numbers were looking at a cash on cash return of 25% and then an IRR of 19%. But then he also mentioned that those numbers are usually opposite. What does that mean? He was talking about um, the ATMs. Okay. Right. So cash on cash return for the ATMs is 25%, but it's different than cash on cash return for other assets because the ATMs at the end, you don't get anything back. The asset basically depreciates for nothing, right? So you don't sell them at the end like you would sell your apartment. Mm -hmm. So basically cash on cash return is the annual cash flow divided by the capital you invest. So in most syndications, your cash on cash return is like six to twelve percent, right? Okay. It varies, but six to twelve percent is what you can you can expect. The IRR is a is a complicated formula that has to be done by a calculator. Okay. You don't want to try it on your own. But basically it takes into account the time value of money. And it's looking at the total return on the investment over time, not just an annual return, but over time the total return. So in a typical investment, the IRR is higher because yeah. you're compounding the annual returns over the life of the investment. Or cash on cash is just an annual look without taking into account the sales proceeds. I got you. Okay. And so ATMs are different because there's very little capital, if any, returned at the end. And return of capital is what juices the IRR calculation on a typical real estate deal, where you get 100% of your capital back plus the cash flow. ATMs, you get a lot of cash flow, but very little capital that's returned, and there are virtually no sales proceeds. So that's why on the... ATMs, you might have a higher cash on cash than the IRR, but on the typical deal, like if you're doing a multifamily, you might have cash on cash of 8%. Okay. And then your IRR might be 17, 18%. Okay. Okay. I got you. So, so the ATMs are kind of the outlier. Yes. And it's, or any asset that depreciates fully. And we were talking yeah. about depreciation recapture. One of the nice things about ATMs is because they depreciate to almost nothing, there's almost no recapture. Gotcha. So that that tax deferral you get ends up being tax that you just avoid paying. Gotcha. Okay. The next two terms, I, again, I hear, hear them pretty often. When they're talking about a deal, it's how do they force appreciation or how do they force equity? What's the difference between the two? Is one more advantageous than the other? Forced appreciation and forced equity are basically the same thing. Okay. Because if you're forcing appreciation, you're building equity. So I think they're used interchangeably. Okay. But what, what it is, and this, this is where I did not do a very good job when I was an active investor, because I was thinking that the value of my investments in real estate were market driven and multifamily is not. So if you have a house and you want to sell it, it's going to sell based on appraisals, right? What the sure. neighbor's house sold for. But if you have a commercial property, like an apartment complex, it's going to sell based on the net operating income, right? So by forcing appreciation, it's not market-driven. It's all about property improvements. So you are rehabbing interiors. You're putting in dog fences. You're putting in washer dryers. All of those things serve to force appreciation because it doesn't matter what the market's doing. Those things are going to increase the rent at your property. Okay. You don't care if you have two apartment complexes right next to each other, you're going to compare rents. Yeah. But if you have all these extra things like dog fences, washer dryers, and nicer units, you're going to get a higher rent 
than the apartment next to you, not because of the market, but because of what you, the appreciation that you forced. You both start at the same place because the market's going to set the base rent gotcha. because okay. of where you are in the neighborhood, but then you're going to get higher or lower rent based on amenities and what you do to the property. And that's forcing appreciation. Okay. So is there, when you, when you're looking at forcing appreciation, when it comes to passive deals, because I get, if you own the, the property, you can do that, but in passive deals, is that something that is usually they'll they'll disclose that up front that we're we're going to try to force equity or is that just an understood that that's what everybody does well that's what most people are doing when they're talking about value add right okay. everyone talks about value add as a strategy and value add is typically you are forcing appreciation now there's different kinds because i think value add sometimes you think okay it's a rundown apartment we're going to do a bunch of interior work and that is forcing appreciation okay. whereas the other parts I was talking about, dog fences, washer dryers, putting in Amazon delivery boxes, all those amenities, that's forcing appreciation as well. But that's not necessarily completely value add because value add kind of connotates you're really redoing all the units. I got you. Okay. Okay. So I'm familiar with velocity of money mm-hmm. and how that works. Using the same dollar several times and getting several uses out of it. What I don't understand is... In, in these passive deals, how do you get your capital back? So they pay you your money back, you've been made whole, but then you still have an, an interest in that property. So you're still getting returns on that. How does that work? So the velocity of money, when people talk about that, it's, it's talking about keep your money moving, right? And yeah. earning and, and using the same dollar in multiple places. Let's assume you invest $50,000 in the deal and they force equity, right? And increase the value of the property over the first few years. They can then go to the bank and show that the net income on the property has increased, right? Therefore, the property value has increased. Okay. And so the operator can refinance. So let's assume they refinance and they can return 100% of the capital back. So you get your $50,000 back. You still own the deal. You're still an owner in that deal. So you're still cash flowing on that deal because they just refinanced you. So they return your capital. There's no tax consequence. You have your capital back. Now you take that original 50,000. And you put it into a new deal, right? I now you have $50,000 and you have two assets that are cash flowing simultaneously. One, you've gotten all your capital back. One still has your capital, but that just allows you to, you're basically making two returns on that $1. Okay. So this may be a stretch, but it, would it would it be similar to then if I go buy a single family house, I renovate it, I refinance it, get my money out and I take the money that I got back. And go buy another house. Yeah, it's like the Burr method, right? Okay. That they talk about at Bigger Pockets, which yep. is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. I yep. think this is the same thing. You're just doing Burr on a larger scale. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you could do it. It's similar the way you know you could use the cash value or life insurance to invest in sy- yep. syndication. You can take the loan out against your cash value, invest in the syndication. Your life insurance still performs like the money's in there. Then the syndication is also giving you a return. Gotcha. So you have multiple returns out of $1. And that's basically the velocity of money. That's what you're doing. Whatever the asset is, however you do it, yeah. you are using $1 to give you several either income streams or several different returns. Okay. Is that pretty common in passive deals that, that you can do that? Yeah. There, there's And again, you need to find the operator or the syndicator that fits your needs, right? Okay. Some there are, there are some that their whole focus is velocity of money. They want to, and this is the one, the one that dog fences, all this stuff. They just want to force equity as fast as they can. 
so that they can go to the bank and refinance, give you your money back. And then they know, hey, you'll have money available for what? For their next investment, right? So they just, they try to recycle it. There's others that just want to cash flow the properties. So they're not trying to, they're not doing velocity. They might pay higher cash flow Mm -hmm. as you go rather than trying to force the appreciation so fast that they can get the money back. So there's just different strategies. Gotcha. Okay. Explain cap rate. What's its significance? Why does it matter? Okay. So cap rate is basically just a metric that allows you to compare two similar type properties and estimate which one will give you the highest return. So it's capitalization rate. It's the net operating income divided by the purchase price or the market value. You exclude any loans. You're looking at the value of a property, not looking at the loan, just the actual values of the property. Okay. And um, so if you're selling a property, you would like a low or compressed cap rate because that means the denominator is growing, right? The market price is increasing. So the denominator is growing. And that's where this gets confusing. If you're selling, you want a low cap rate. If you're buying, you want a higher cap rate because if there's a higher cap rate, that means the market price of the asset is lower. So it's a little bit backwards, but it ties into forcing equity, right? Because this is what we were talking about. Let's say you have a hundred unit property and you do some improvements. For example, you add a washer dryer to every unit at a cost of a thousand dollars per unit. Okay. Okay. So you just spent thousand dollars in a hundred units. That's a hundred thousand dollars. Now let's assume you get fifty dollars per month in additional rent. Mm-hmm. So the way I looked at it when I was a multifamily owner was I'm not doing that because that takes me 20 months to recoup my costs, right? That's how I was thinking. Of putting the washer dryer. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put a washer dryer in there and only charge them 50 bucks. It's going to take me almost two years sure. to get that money back. I don't even know if the tenant's going to stay that. Yeah. So I'm not spending that money. That's how I looked at it. And that was the wrong way to look at it. If you look at the cap rate, let's assume the cap rate 6%, right? Okay. Just a made up number. If you take the $50 in additional rent times 100 units, Right. And you increased your monthly income then by $5,000. Yep. And your annual income by $60,000. Okay. If you divide that $60,000 by the cap rate, right? That's just the formula. Okay. You've increased the value of the property by a million dollars. Just by spending $100,000. By spending $100,000 and, and getting $50 yes. rent increases. Okay. And that's what blew my mind. Uh, a $50 rent increase, increase across your 100 units is going to result in a million dollars extra to the value of the property. And this is why when I owned a 22-unit multifamily and I sold it to a buddy of mine who knew how to do this stuff and had a real like business doing this, he was able to double the value of the property in a year. I was happy with that because I doubled it in two years, yeah. but I was doing it wrong. Okay. He did it right because he understood cap rates and market values of commercial properties are based on the net operating income. Okay, so let me ask you this. That's that values on paper, right? It's, I mean, the, the million dollars that you increase in is only if somebody says, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, you've increased in a million dollars. I'll give you that, that price for it. So yes. is that pretty common though? I mean, is it pretty hard and fast that, that they, they use that formula to make an offer? Yeah. Everybody uses that formula, but the thing that they decide on is what's the appropriate cap rate, right? Cause I said it was a 6% cap rate. Oh. If I said it was a 10% cap rate, then the math's different, or a 4% cap rate, then the math's different. So then it's agreeing on what the cap rate is. Gotcha. But when you're going to a bank, you can say whatever the purchase price cap rate was, and you can if you say, hey, the cap rates are the same in this market, or or you just show them, this is where maybe comps come in, because you're showing them cap rates of other similar properties. 
bank agrees with your cap rate, then they're going to agree that the property's worth a million dollars more. And that's where you could do a refi, right? And you refinance, you return the capital, right? So in this example, it's only a million dollars, right? But think about it. If you, if you rehabbed all hundred units and you increase the rent $200 for each unit, and then you put in some dog fences on the first floor and some washer dryers, now you see how you can turn a $10 million apartment complex into a $15 million apartment complex really quickly. But then you think about it, it already, that $10 million complex probably had a seven and a half million dollar loan, right? So you invested, if you bought the whole thing, two and a half million dollars. Now you've increased your equity from two and a half million to seven and a half million. Gotcha. Right. You've more than tripled, Tripled right? What the value of your property is. And you go out and you do that by going out and getting another loan. Gotcha. They're going to give you $5 million, right? Which is more than you put into it. I see. Okay. So then it's velocity money and it just all keeps repeating. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Here's kind of a basic question. I ask myself this a lot when I'm when I'm reading stuff and when I'm listening to stuff. When you're new to this, when you're new to the passive investing or you're new to real estate in general, there's a lot of information and there's as much information as you as you want. But how do you digest all that? If you know, if you're looking at something and it's 30 or 40 pages long, how do you know what's important and what's what's not? That's a good question. If we can figure that out, that'd be great. <laughs> but it's different for everyone. You know, you have to start with education like you're doing here. You have to just say, hey, I don't understand some of these terms. Then you read the terms, or I'm sorry, learn the terms by maybe reading a book, yeah. listen to podcasts, learn what others focus on, and and then make a decision. So use some kind of tool like the deal analyzer, right, that we have at Leftfield Investors. Ask for some old executive summaries or pro formas from a company you're thinking about investing in. Okay. Throw them in a tool like a deal analyzer or just look through them based on the knowledge you got from a book. And and then you'll see, okay, here's some of the things that I would focus on. So for me right now, from what I've learned over the last few years, the first, and, and, and you go through a deal and you look at, I look at three things first. Okay. And if any of those are out of whack, then I'm done. I'm out of the deal. Gotcha. Right. And if all those are in line, then I'm going to dig further. So the three things I look at are economic vacancy, which I think is a question you have for later. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about that. Economic vacancy, rent growth, and taxes. Okay. So economic vacancy is vacancy, lost lease, concessions, bad debt, and renovated units. So that's just a whole, usually vacancy, when I was doing active, I would say 5%. But the, that's just the actual apartment being vacant. If there's loss to lease, which is if the if the apartment could rent on the market for 1500 but we have someone in there for 1200 oh. That's $300 of loss to lease. The sure. Okay. okay. Or concessions if we have to give away TVs or free months rent to get someone in there. So looking at economic vacancy, I think, depending on the type of asset class or neighborhood, sure. or you know, C class, B class, A class, that kind of thing, it should be around 8% plus or minus. Okay. So if I see one at 5%, I'm going to ask some questions. Why is it five? Or if it's 10, I'm going to ask some questions. Gotcha. So that's one thing I look at. Rent growth. 
if they have an 8% rent growth in their pro forma for year one, I'm going to question it. Like, how do you get 8% increase on every unit in year one? If, if you buy it in January 1st, you can't increase everybody's rent January 1st, right? Because some are going to expire in June, some in December. So that's just unrealistic. I see so unless they can justify that and say why, you know, I like to see 2 to 3% rent increase each year. Okay. So that's another thing I look at. And then the tax situation is typically if you buy a property, the um, taxes are going to go up because the value of the property went up. Yeah. So if you have your pro forma and you're just using historical taxes, then I think that's understated. And this is where some syndicators kind of hide things is that the tax burden should go up in year one because the county is going to reevaluate. I guess. So those are just three things I look at. Those aren't the only things, but those are the main three things. So when you're new to passive investing, I would find a few of these metrics, either from a book or from someone you know or whatever, and then just start concentrating on those when you look at deals to screen out some. Okay. And then once you've screened out the ones that you don't like, then you can dig deeper on the other ones. So what I take away from, from your answer there is don't just be worried about numbers that seem too low, but if they're too high, ask questions and, and be curious about them. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask questions for sure, because a lot of these books and, and some of the tools we have will give a range for each metric. Like the, the rent growth should be two to three percent. Well, if it's zero, I would ask a question. If it's eight, I would ask a question. You know, if it's three and a half, okay, maybe I can live with that if everything else checks out. So it's really about, and the only way you can do this is you have to start looking at deals. Okay. You can't just say, well, here's the one deal I looked at. And, you know, you have to be able to get a feel for, okay, comparing deal to deal to deal. And after you do five or 10 of these and analyze them, you'll know what you're looking for and you'll, and you'll figure out slowly what's important to you. Because I didn't ever think about economic vacancy. I didn't even know what it was. Once I started learning about it, I'm like, that's an interesting one. Okay, so somebody who's, who's brand new, maybe isn't ready to, to put money into these deals yet, but they want to start reading these deals and learning about them. You mentioned the call the sponsors and, and ask them to send you pro formers. And stuff. Are they willing to do that? Will they send you that kind of stuff so you can learn without any sort of obligation to, to put money in? Yes, and if, and if they're not willing to do that, then I wouldn't invest with them. Okay. What I would do is I'd ask for a couple of old deals and say, you just want to see what they look like. And then I would say, put me on the list and send me all your new deals. I and I would analyze all of the new deals, even though I was had no intention to invest because a lot of these deals, they go fast, right? They send out the, the pro forma and 24, later, 24 hours later, the deal's full, Oh, really? right? On, on some of them. So some of them, if I've analyzed the previous three deals and they all look good, then I know the next one that comes out, I'm just going to jump on it. I'm going to say I'm in. I got you. Then I can underwrite it afterwards. And if something is really out of whack, I can pull out if I, I need to. Okay. So you mentioned putting it into the, putting all these, these numbers into the, the formula, right? To, to, where do you get that? Is that something that, that you have to create yourself to, to know if the numbers make sense or? There's different people have different ways they do it, right? At Leftfield Investors, we have a deal analyzer tool. Okay. And so we just, we can take the 30 metrics or so from the, from the pro forma, from the pitch deck that they send us, we throw them into our tool and it, it's an Excel thing. And, you know, it turns red if it's not in our metric and green if it, if it is. So you don't have to, I mean, you gotta be smart enough to read numbers and put them into the, into the software. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be able to look at a, you know, an income statement, a balance sheet be yeah. able to, that they send you and pull yeah. them, pull the numbers out. Um, and that takes a little bit of learning, right? But anyone can do it once you, yeah. and, there's other people that have tools like this too. Um, okay. So I would just find 
one that works for you or read a book and, and have, you know, find the metrics that, that kind of strike your fancy and just, you. and just check those out. Okay. What I've learned is there's different kinds of deals, right? There's deals that are geared towards cash flow, towards appreciation or tax advantages. So are there deals, are there sponsors that will, will give you a taste of all three of those in the same deal? Or do you have to know going in, this is my goal, so this is the type of deal I'm going to go after, or this is a sponsor that I want to work with? That's a great question. And yes, there are deals where you can get all three, but really most syndicators focus on either cash flow or appreciation, it seems. Okay. I mean, but you, you get some of each yeah. in, in every deal, pretty much. Tax advantages, there's also some people do cost segregation, bonus depreciation, and some don't. So you have to ask about that as well. Okay. I would not invest in anything just for the tax advantages, right? I would make sure I like the deal for other reasons. But to see if it's cash flow or appreciation, you got to talk to the sponsor because typically in the pro forma, if the cash on cash is low in early years, and then there's a large gain on the back end, that's going to be an appreciation deal. So what I do is when I first got into this, I was investing in deals that didn't match my goals or my needs because I I wasn't really, I didn't have a plan. That's why now I have a strategy, have a plan. I don't have a W-2. I need cash flow. So I'm focusing on deals that are cash flow deals okay. that have appreciation on the back end, but that's not their main focus. Sure. There's other deals where they're really forcing it. If you're forcing appreciation and you're trying for that velocity of money, then it's it's not a cash flow deal because okay. you're putting all the money into forcing that appreciation, getting a refi as soon as possible. Gotcha. Okay. So that's not going to cash flow monthly. You're waiting two, three years to get that capital back. So it's I a guess. different look. Okay. And that's what you need to talk to the sponsor about. You need to understand and make sure they understand what you're investing for so they can tell you, hey, this fits you or it doesn't. Okay. So that's something that if you say, if, if you say, hey, I listen, my goal is to, to get out of my W-2, I'm looking for, for cash flow deals. You, you tell the sponsor that and they'll be able to say this is the deal for you or maybe this isn't the deal for you. Yeah. And then you look at the pro form and you can tell if they're telling the truth, right? Gotcha. Okay. If, if you say I'm just investing for cash flow, and they get you into a d- development deal that doesn't have any cash flow for the first two years, then they're not being honest with you. And that's, you're done. Okay. You walk away. Gotcha. And, and I haven't seen sponsors that do that, but I'm sure that they're out. Okay. Gotcha. So the next one is going to be a real short question. In fact, it's two words. Capital stack. <laughs> yeah. The capital stack is basically where everyone sits as far as who gets paid back first. So the higher you are in the capital stack, the higher the risk and hopefully the higher the returns. So common equity limited partners yep. invest in common equity. That's the position at the top. That's the highest risk and hopefully the highest reward. Then you have preferred equity or different class shares, which we'll talk about later because I think you had a question on that also. And then debt is the lowest on the yep. capital stack because they get paid first. So really the capital stack is important to understand because you, if you're the limited partners typically at the top, the last ones to get paid. So you want to know everybody else who's in front of you and what their terms are for when they get paid so that you understand how you get paid. So when you say they're at the top, you're working from the bottom up. Yes, which okay. also is backwards. I know yeah, it seems okay. confusing, but that, and, and some people call it the other way. So basically, you just have to know that the LPs, the common equity, they get paid last. Okay, Everybody L- else LPs are limited partners. Yeah, thank you. Everyone else gets paid before them. Preferred equity gets paid before them and debt gets paid before them. Okay, so what's the difference in preferred return Class A or Class B? This is completely separate from the conversation we just had. 
except, well, I actually preferred return is class A, class B, it isn't. So let me start over. Preferred return, that's the amount the sponsor promises to pay annually in returns to the investor before the sponsor gets paid. Okay. It doesn't mean they guarantee it, but they say, look, the preferred return is 7%. Yeah. So you'll get 7% a year, no matter what, oh. before the, the GP, the sponsor gets anything. Okay. So let's say you're in a deal and you get three and a half percent year one, seven percent year two, seven percent year three, and then they sell the asset. They still have three and a half percent that they owe you because they didn't get to that seven percent preferred and they call it pref. Yeah. They didn't get to the seven percent pref in year one. Okay. So what they'll do is they'll take all the proceeds from the sale they just made, they will give you that extra three and a half percent to get the pref, then they will return your capital to okay. you, and then whatever's left over. That goes in the split, whatever the split with the sponsors, a lot of it's 80, 20, 70, 30, whatever the split is, that's the money that gets split after the preferred return is paid to you. So if you have a preferred return, you're going to get it. You just might have to wait until the property sells to get made whole. Yeah. Or if they cash flowed for years, they might have extra cash flow in later years that can can pay back the early. early. So not everyone has a preferred return, but that's what the preferred return is. It's basically there so that you are guaranteed to get paid before yeah. the sponsor. Not, you're not guaranteed to get paid. You're guaranteed yeah. to get paid before they take any money. So the point of that is to put the incentive on the GPs to make sure that they're doing a good job because they don't get paid until you get paid. So you do. Okay, gotcha. So if you just if you're going to get in a deal, does the does the the sponsor does the general partner decide how much preferred stock or preferred shares there are? Well, it's preferred return on the limited partners' ownership share. So they'll say. Preferred return on this deal is 7% for limited partners. So, that's so how do I know if I'm a limited partner? That You're a limited partner if you're investing in a syndication. So anybody, if, if you put, and I'm going to make numbers up here, but if you put $200,000 in to a deal and I put $25,000 in, we're both preferred. Yep. And our 7% is just based on based how on much capital we put. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. And then you asked about class A versus class B. Yep. And this is hard to say because each syndicator has a different idea of and that's why you have to read the operating agreement and the, everything else. But typically, in general, the class A and the class B, in a lot of deals, the class A would be the general partner and the class B would be the limited partners. Okay. But what we're talking about is the other way they do it, where they have two LP limited partner share classes, class A and class B. Okay. Okay. So that's a little bit different. Class A might get a higher cash on cash return and no upside. So in a lot of examples, they'll say, okay, class A, gets 10% cash on cash return. So 10% preferred return every year. But when it sells, they get nothing. Just take capital back. So you're just getting the 10% return and you get your capital back. Capital back and now you don't get that 10% anymore, right? Because it's- Right, because this deal's sold. Okay. Class B usually gets a lower cash on cash, say 7%, but they get upside. So if the deal goes full cycle and doubles, they'll get their 7% and then they'll get the appreciation also. And the reason why somebody does that, the class A, is because they just want regular cash flow and, the, and they don't want the risk of having the upside. Okay. So the key is what we need to know is the it's like leverage, right? Because cap class A, if they're higher in the capital stack, right? So they get paid before, or I'm sorry, lower in the capital stack. So they get paid before class B, yep. right? So in this deal where they, the example I gave where they're at 10%, if the deal only returns through the life of the deal 8%, class A shareholders get all. 
and class um, B gets nothing. Class B gets nothing. But the other way, if it returns 15%, then class A only gets 10%. Class B is going to get the 15% plus the back-end depreciation. Oh, so the reason why it acts like leverage is it amplifies your wins and it amplifies your losses. Okay. And so when I was first looking at this, I was just looking at whether I wanted to be class A or class B, and I wasn't looking at the capital stack implications. Okay. Now, I really try to avoid these deals because you're in a position where class B is subordinate to class A. And so you might, not, if the deal goes to pro forma, you're fine. You're great. In fact, class A is better for you. Being in class B is better because of the yeah. class A share. But if it underperforms, things are worse. So you just have to kind of realize that and understand it and dig into the deal. Because some sponsors also say class A and class B are equal in the capital stack. Okay. They say that, but then their documents might say differently. So you really have to dig into it because not everyone understands it the same. So is that something if the GP gives you the option that there's class A and class B, can you just pick whatever one you want? Yeah, a lot of times a lot of times the the minimum for class B will be lower. Okay. So they give you an option of doing a split where maybe you do 80% B and 20% A. That's what I like to do because then you you mitigate your risk a little bit because sure. you're in both pots. Okay. But that usually comes with a higher minimum. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. So we talked a little bit about this earlier, about the the vacancy and, and occupancy and how you factor that in. What's break-even occupancy? Okay, so break-even occupancy is basically there's a formula, right? Operating expenses plus debt service divided by gross income. So the lower the number, the better. Right? Break even at 80% basically just means that you have to have 80% of the units fully occupied before you can make a profit. Okay. Anything occupancy over 80%, you're making money. Okay. Anything under 80%, you're definitely losing money. Um, and that assumes certain amounts in, in rent and stuff like that. Right? right. And it's all in the pro form. Okay. Gotcha. Um, the, the pro form of break even. I mean, you can calculate the break even after the fact too, because you'll know if you're making money, you're, right. you're good. If not, you're not. Another metric to look at is DSCR, debt service coverage ratio. I almost forgot what that was. Debt service co- coverage ratio, it measures if cash flow is going to cover the debt service. Okay. Okay. So since cash flow is income less expenses, it's essentially the inverse, the break-even number. So what you want for typically, at least in our models, we typically want 80% break-even or okay. 1.25 DSCR. And they're really, they're really the inverse of each other. Gotcha. So you can look at either one. Okay. So my mind goes to 80% occupancy, but is that just calculated on an annual basis? Because, I mean, you might have somebody that, that's in there for, for three months of the year, and you have other, somebody else who's in there for 11 months of the year. And even though those are both open for part of the year, it's a lot different financially, right? Yeah, I think you're, you're looking at it, like the reports you get usually say, hey, we're 94% occupied, we're 95% occupied. So break-even occupancy is just, you just want to make sure you're above whatever the, the pro forma number is. And again, it's all based on cap rates and things like that. So in the pro forma, it's really just made up stuff. Okay. And that's why you got to dig into the pro forma to make sure that the assumptions they're using are fair and accurate. Because if they're assuming 8% rent increases, then everything is going to look fantastic. <laughs> okay. Right? So that's where you kind of have to look at multiple things at the same time and just make sure the assumptions are valid. Okay. That makes sense. So in a lot of the deals, they it talks about the the GP, the general partner, the LP limited partner split. I mean, I get what it what it is, but is there a ratio? Is there a percentage that is is acceptable to you or acceptable 
in the industry? Yeah, and as with almost every answer I've given so far, it depends. It depends. Sorry. But it depends on the sponsor and the asset class, right? Experienced okay. sponsors might have a 60-40 split, meaning 60% of the profits at the end are going to go to the LPs and 40% to the GPs. Okay. Newer sponsors might be 80-20, where 80% goes to the LPs. And the reason for that is because experienced sponsors can say, look, the last 20 deals I made, they all made 30% returns. And the new sponsors, like, I've only closed two deals. So people don't have as much confidence. But it changes all the time. Like there's a mobile park guy who's now doing 2080. 20 to the LP? Yeah. And, it, and that seems crazy, right? The real thing is in the pro form is they usually show net returns. So net of the split. So oh, if, they're, if you like the returns that they're saying they're going to give you and the split isn't egregious and you're okay with it, then does it really matter what you pay them if they're giving you the returns that they want? I mean, you also ask, you know, what's an acceptable yeah. Or, I mean, what, what, what split should raise concern? Yeah. Right. So I think anything lower than 70, 30, and I'm going to start asking questions. Okay. But if it's mobile home parks, typically those are lower than multifamily. So if there's 70, maybe 60, 40, I, I would ask questions then. And so also, why, why are they typically, why would mobile homes be lower than multifamily? Well, they don't have, typically they're just, they just have the pads. They don't have as many expenses oh, and everything okay. else. Okay. So they're not collecting as much in management fees and, and other things like that. It's okay. all in this backing. We've not talked about this yet, but it's it's come up in a few of the the podcasts. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why a triple net lease for a Home Depot, a Walgreens, something like that, why does that make sense for them? I get why it makes sense for the investor, but why would it make sense for them? There's a few reasons. And the, the main one is the capital infusion from the sale of the property. Right. So they're selling the property to you. Yeah. Okay. And so they can use that instead of owning the property. Now they rent it. So now they have money for expansion, pay down debt, all those other things that frees up capital. And also they have control. They can make any improvements they want. They might have to ask permission, but they can do whatever they want because they're paying for it. And it's also lower costs. They can control the cost of insurance. They can have their own maintenance guys without having to pay a markup. So it probably lowers costs and also. Home Depot, Walgreens, these guys, they're not in the business of being real estate owners. They're operating business. Sure. You know, I know McDonald's, people say, is more of a real estate company than anything else. And that's true, but that's a decision they've made that they yeah. want to own the real estate. But okay. if you just want to concentrate on being Walgreens, then owning a bunch of real estate is not your forte. Sure. Okay. That's not what you want to do. All right, that makes sense. So are there, are, are there syndicators, are there sponsors out there that only do triple net leases or that focus primarily on triple net lease properties? Yeah, absolutely. There's some that do just industrial triple net leases, which is more of the, that's more of the, what I say, capital infusion. Okay. That's where companies, you know, they might operate 50 years in the same location and they own all the property. Well, if they sell it to somebody who rents it back to them. Now they have a ton of capital that they can use for whatever they want, pay down other debt or build a new plant, whatever. And they don't have to worry about that anymore. So yeah, and there's also sponsors that do commercial, which is more of the Home Depot, Walgreens things you were talking about. Um, and they, they concentrate on that. And, and if they get hooked in with a couple of different companies, they can just keep buying them, you know, and, they, and so the rents, it's good for the sponsor, as you said, because the rents are guaranteed by these na- national corporations. I got you. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the last questions I have for you, there was a self-storage deal that I was looking at, and it talks about a four-year hold 
with is like a 1.75 multiplier. Explain the multiplier. Is that just an estimate of total return, total money back? And then what what's a good multiplier? What would be one that maybe would be worth not doing a deal if it's if it's too low? Okay. So yeah, the multiplier basically, yeah, if you have a 1.75 multiplier, that means if you invest a hundred thousand dollars, then at the end, whatever they they, they usually say it's gonna be a five year hold or a seven year hold or whatever, let's say it's a five year hold. At the end of five years, you will have $175,000 from cash flow, capital return, and appreciation. Okay. So cash flow is all the stuff that you get monthly or quarterly, yep. plus the capital return, which is the 100000 you invested, yep. plus the appreciation. So all of that is the 1.75. So you give them 100 grand after five years. If you just tucked all the money in your mattress and saved it, you'll have $175,000. I got you. Five years later. So what's a good multiplier? Your favorite answer. <laughs> it depends. Okay. It changes with the market, the asset class, and the sponsor. So now maybe it's 1.6 to okay. 2. A few years ago, mostly it was 2 and above. And not only does it differ by market and asset class, but also how long are you holding, right? Sure, because a short hold, you'd expect a lower oh, okay. multiplier, right? So some of these self-storage deals that are going full cycle that were supposed to be six-year deals and have like a 2 multiplier, they're only going two years, but the multiplier might be 1.7, but that's okay because I'm getting the money so fast. You know, the annual return is going to be much higher than the projections, okay. even though the multiplier might not be. Yeah. So I don't know that there's a multiplier that will say, hey, I'm not doing this deal because of it. Some people are just more conservative. There's a multifamily sponsor that their multiplier is usually 1.6, okay. which seems really low compared to the other guys who are at 1.8, 1.9, but these are all pro formats, right? It just gotcha. means that this 1.6 is way more conservative and they have a history and they never get the 1.6. They're always higher than that, but they're just conservative in their under. So under promise and over deliver. Yeah. Okay. So, so that you mentioned two multiplier on a four year deal. So what happens if they, if they get to the point where, where they've gotten to that two multiplier, but their five year deal that they anticipated, they're not there yet. Like maybe they're three or four years into it. Do they, sell it, refinance, do whatever they're going to do and give you your money back at two at the two multiplier or do they hold it and the multiplier gets better? Well, that that's completely up to the sponsor. That's one of the downsides of passive investing is you have no control. Okay. You can't tell them, hey, you reached your goals, sell. But mostly they want you to invest with them again okay. and they want to make money. So they'll make the decision that is, okay, here's, we, we want to make money and we want you to invest again. So We've hit the two multiplier in three years when we thought we'd hit it in five. It's a good market. Let's sell the asset, give everyone their money back, and they try to put you right into a new deal. Yeah. Right. So that's that's probably what they would do. Okay. Or they could just hold and let it cash flow. But it's really just up to the sponsor. And you don't sometimes they'll they'll send an email out and say, Hey, let's vote. I know one guy did this where they vote that the LPs vote on whether they want to sell or not because they've accomplished their goals. Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of these deals are basically like flips, but they're long-term flips, okay. right? You buy a property, you rehab it, you hold it for a while, and then you flip it for a higher cost or a higher sale, right? And so if they reach their goals early, they're probably going to sell or refi. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Last question I want to I want to ask you, and this is kind of not off topic, but off script. So most people that, that have have listened, probably know your background, you know, accidental landlord, all that kind of stuff. But but since you've gotten into to passive investing and looking at these deals, is there is there one deal or one mistake that you made 
that you learned so much from it that you said, never again, I'm not going to do that. There's no chance you'll ever repeat that, that mistake. Yes, and I thank you for ending on such a high note where you want to know the time. Well, everybody always wants to know about the good deals, right? right. But I want to know what, what's the mistake that you learned from. You know, that, that's, a, that's a great question. There's two. There's two, two that I can say for sure. One is I was investing with a sponsor who was doing single-family turnkey properties in Texas, meaning they buy single-family homes, they fix them up, get a renter in there, sell them to you, and you just cash flow. Well, Dallas, the market was so good there that the prices kept going up and turnkeys weren't working anymore. So this company said, we're going to do office buildings and we're going to do, is during the CBD craze, they're going to do CBD okay. equipment leasing. Okay. And I'm like, well, yeah, they did turnkeys awesome. So I'm sure they'll do this other stuff awesome. And I lost my shirt. And the lesson is I am never, ever investing with someone who does something that they haven't done before. Gotcha. And the only caveat to that is there's a... Um, a multifamily operator that I like that said, Hey, we're going to start doing self storage. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm out, not interested. And then they said, well, we've hired someone who has 20 years experience in self storage and they're going to run this for us. And then I said, okay, so then you'll listen. let me know when your second deal is. I'd like to see okay. how your first deal goes. And then I'll think about your second deal. So the lesson I learned is I'm not investing with someone on their experiment, on their new, new operation. I'm going to wait and let someone else be the experiment for them. So that was that was the first one. The second lesson that I've learned is you really need to make sure that the sponsor, you evaluate the sponsor properly and that their communication matches what you need. So there's a certain sponsor that I invested with early on. I did not vet them properly and their communication is horrible. Really? So if your communication is bad and the investment's going good, I still want to know, <laughs> but if it's going bad, I really want. It. So now I test sponsors. I won't invest in somebody unless I know that their communication is going to be good because there's no way to evaluate these two or three years in. Yeah. You can't really, you don't know if your deal is performing until it's over. And these are long-term relationships. So what I do is I, we have the deal analyzer mm-hmm. and I find all the red boxes, the metrics that don't fit. That doesn't mean don't invest in the deal. It means ask questions is what I would say. So I, then I write them an email and I expect them to answer it within a timely manners of 24 hours okay. or have a reason why they didn't. And I want quality answers. I don't want them to say, hey, we just did a webinar. We answered it in there. I want you to, yeah, I want you to answer the question. And then once they reply to me with a quality answer in timely fashion, even if I don't have any more questions, I'm going to ask one more. Okay. And I'm going to ask one more because I want to know, are they going to get annoyed because I like lots of information? <laughs> I'm high maintenance, you know that. So I want to know, are they going to get mad at me for asking more questions? Or like one of my favorite sponsors did, he said, hey, do you have time to get on a phone call? I'd love to dig in deep on these questions with you. And so that one, I'm like, I'm in. No, you don't even have to answer the question now because it was just a test and you passed. So what I've learned is sponsors need to be vetted. I prefer them to come from referrals from people I already know, like, and trust. And then once I get in there, I'm going to test and make sure that they respond in a timely fashion because there's nothing more frustrating than not knowing how your deal is performing. Okay. And then the other thing is, I am not going to be anybody's guinea pig. If you're switching <laughs> into something new, I'm going to let other people test that for you. Any other questions? No, I think that covers, I mean, those are the ones that popped out from listening to the different podcasts and stuff. Well, this was fantastic. You know, I know that this answered a lot of questions for a lot of people. And it, it, it made me go back 
and freshen up on some of these topics. Because I know as we're just talking about them, people throw out these terms. And there's a lot of people that are new to this in our community who will really benefit from hearing these. So I really appreciate you agreeing to come on and ask all these questions on behalf of everybody else. And so now I'm going to end with the question I always ask my guests last is, what are some one, two, however many you got good podcasts that you listen to? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not a big podcast guy, like when I'm driving and stuff like that, but I'll listen to them when I'm cutting the grass and doing stuff around the house, stuff like that. There's one, Tim Ferriss, who is, has been good. I've, I've been listening to him for a couple of years. Jocko Willink does one. He's an ex-Navy SEAL and he does some pretty cool stuff and has some really neat guests on, but I actually found him. He's, he's written a couple of kids books and it's called The Warrior Kid. And they're, I bought them for my kids, but, but they're incredible books just about determination and self belief and how, how so much of that is, is lost on, on some kids that it, it carries over into, into adulthood. And then the other one is, is the passive investing from left field. Nice. That's my favorite. <laughs> That's the one that kind of got me, got me into this. And obviously I've, I've known you before your, your passive days, but I got to full disclosure. I was a little hesitant. But the way those those podcasts come out and are set up, it makes it so easy to just listen to. They're not real long, but they have so much information in, and the guests that you have on really seem to know their stuff. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think all the podcasts aren't too long except for this one. But there was a lot of good information and we had to finish our glasses of bourbon. So with that, I will say thank you very much for coming on. This was fantastic. And uh, we'll do it again. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.